Welcome, everybody, to the Interventional Endoscopist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Munkovil Suchdev. I'm an interventional endoscopist in the Phoenix, Arizona area, and also the program director of the Advanced Endoscopy Fellowship at Arizona Centers for Digestive Health. I started this podcast to discuss things that I found to be interesting in the practice of interventional endoscopy, and also as a way to meet and interview key opinion leaders in the field. Today, I want to discuss um, job seeking for fellows. Basically, in the next few weeks, we're going to see across the country second-year fellows graduate or become third-year fellows, and we're going to see fourth-year fellows starting. And what's a common thread for both of them is that within two months of starting their final year of training, whether it be a third or a fourth year, they're going to start looking for jobs. And I've been in practice now for about 13 years. And anytime I get to this time of the year and I saw new fellows start, I start to think about what my journey was and what my experience was like. And I think I've learned a few things along the way that I'd like to share. You know, one of the things that I've done with this podcast, in addition to, you know, talking about various subjects is I do have two episodes dedicated so far to finding a fourth-year fellowship and how to approach a fourth-year fellowship. So also with that, I'll start. The first tip I'm going to give you, this is actually a really good one in my personal opinion, is before you put your name, email, or phone number on any website, and before you send it to any job hunter or headhunter or whatever you know terminology you want to use, recruitment company, etc. And this goes for the ACG and the ASGE as well, because this is where you can really, really get messed up. Don't use your email address. Yes, not your email address. Create a new one. Go to Google, Yahoo, whatever free service you like, and create one with a with your name. Um, it doesn't have to be cute. You don't need to call it you know, Dr. Poopy Pants or whatever you want to call it. Just use your name, but add some strange numbers, maybe your birth year or whatever, and then go to Google Voice and get a new phone number. In essence, you want and you need to have a burner phone. The reason. Before I knew that I was going to do therapeutic endoscopy or before I was accepted into a therapeutic endoscopy spot, I actually registered at the ACG Career Center with my email address and my phone number. To this day, 15, 14, 15 years later, I still get two to four emails a day looking or asking me to look if I want a new job, which I don't. And I get at least three phone calls every other day from various recruitment agencies. How do I know that this isn't from a new locum job that I was looking for? Well, I changed my number uh, a few years ago to a local number in Arizona, and I keep my previous number when I was a fellow as a Google Voice number just for this type of purpose. It'll help you in a lot of ways, not only for job searches, anytime you got to register for a shopper's card at like Walmart or Target or whatever it may be, you can use that number as well. The beautiful thing about this is if you only use it for that, you know whenever that number rings or that email pops up, it's about a job. And 
if you value your privacy, you value the ability to be able not to get tons of spam, spam phone calls, use a fake number. And then when you get your job of choice, you can deactivate it, get rid of it, or just put it on mute or use it as a burner phone. <laughs> so that's my biggest piece of advice. And if you learn anything from this podcast, that would be the one thing to do. The other thing about this uh, topic, you know, a lot of people might ask, well, why do I want to do this topic? And, you know, there's so many good resources. Well, I agree. You know, uh, the GIE podcast did a similar topic several months ago, and I listened to it, and it, it's really good. The problem is the two people talking are primarily academic medicine um, physicians, and they give extremely good advice. It's a great podcast, and if you haven't listened to it, it's uh, advice for GI job seekers with a focus on endoscopy, and it's one of the GIE monthly podcast hosted by both Doug Adler and Dr. Shivangi Katari. So I, I highly encourage you to listen to that. But there are some things that I think need to be added to that conversation. And specifically, you know, we know that 80 to 90% of graduating fellows, whether they're therapeutic or general GI, are not going into the academic world. And I think what was lacking in that podcast with, you know, all due respect and constructive criticism is that there wasn't somebody in the private world giving that advice for the majority of the, the students or uh, young physicians that are coming out. So that's one of the reasons to kind of add to the robust information out there about job seeking. You know, and, and we obviously have the same kind of philosophy. Number one, when you're looking for a job after you've gotten this new number and new email address, you want to look at the geography. Where do you want to live? You know, do you have that flexibility? Do you have to family considerations, spousal considerations, etc.? Many of us have to take jobs because our spouse's jobs are in a different city. So, you know, you really need to look into that. And that's a personal decision. Each one of you who is listening to this and may benefit from this podcast knows the answer to that question. The second thing is, you know, what are you looking for? You know, and I think I kind of touched upon this when I was talking about academic versus private. You have to know yourself. In a previous podcast, I talked about picking a fellowship based off what you want to do in your life. And um, that, that's, that's something to consider. You know, I know most of us will go into a residency or a fellowship program maybe truthfully wanting to be academic physicians, but I do know that 100% of the people tell the interviewers that they want to be an academic uh, physician. And the reality is that that's not what actually happens. So, you know, know inside your heart of hearts what you want. If it's academic, what do you really like about academic? Is it teaching? Because you can teach in private and you can teach in employed models. Or is it, you know, you want to do the research and you want the protected time? Or do you want the status that comes with academic practice? So those are things that you really have to answer. So once you kind of know yourself and you know what your, your desires are, you know, you've got to divide your job search into three kind of broad categories. Academic, private, and employed. And they each have their own challenges and their own discussions and, and their own positives and negatives. And again, you know, once you kind of figure out what your mindset is, then you, the, you know, the, the guide towards which one of these three is, is going to become more clear. So in academic practice, you obviously have to look at things about location, as we mentioned. You have to look at what are your research expectations? Are you going to be given protected time? You know, are you going to be able to have a support staff to help you design and 
perform a study? Do you have connections with other academic institutions to be able to participate in you know, national studies or you know, multi-center trials, et cetera? And then how much teaching are you expected to do? Is there classroom teaching? Is there rounding? You know, all those things. The other thing, too, is the, the kind of definition of what is truly academic versus what is employed slash private is blurring slowly. You know, the lines are not as clear as they once were, where back in the 80s and 90s, you were employed by a university and you made a salary and, you know, they didn't really ever care about what your productivity was. You were there and you were there to teach and research and, you know, your clinical responsibilities were to be met, but they weren't holding you to, you know, targets. Or at least that's what I've been told by my uh, seniors. Um, but now, days in academic, there is a productivity expectation. And what is that and how easy is it to obtain? Are you, if you're an interventional person, are you being uh, inadvertently punished because your RVUs aren't, you know, incentivized for you to do therapeutic cases? Are you better off doing multiple EGDs or colonoscopies as opposed to one long ERCP? And so those are kind of the things that you want to discuss when you're going through that interview process or that uh, exploratory phase. Um, I'm going to skip to the next third one, which is employed model, which is kind of a hybrid of a private practice and an academic in the sense that while you might not have teaching and research obligations, you're employed and you're not really uh, profit sharing or you're not eat what you kill, as people say. You, you are employed, you have a salary, you have an expectation of productivity and how easy is it to obtain that? Is that uh, office setup or the practice setup conducive to you achieving your goals? I recently met a physician who was employed by a system um, that you know he's given a guaranteed salary for a certain number of years. And then after that time period is over, then they have the um, come to Jesus talk, as you will. And they'll say to him, you know, you produced X thousand RVUs and your salary was based off of that. But unfortunately, you only produced 80% of X. Therefore, your salary has to change. Well, that makes logical sense. But when you dive into it, why did the person not be able to achieve 100% of X? And was that because they're lazy? Not really, not at all. Um, it's more because the infrastructure of the practice wasn't there to support him or her to get to that level. And what I mean by that, do you have the ability and the flexibility to schedule patients when you want to? Um, I had another friend who worked for a different hospital health system, and he wanted to, he had a goal of how much money he wanted to make, and he knew how much he was being paid per RVU. So he did some backwards math, and he said to his office staff that I want to do 20 procedures in a procedure day. Okay, that's pretty aggressive for most people, but um, you know, that's what his goal was. And they would only allow him to do 12. So there wasn't a compromise where he said, look, we can't do 20, but we can certainly help you get 15. None of that. It was a very black and white line. You know, you're doing 12 and that's it. And if you want to do more, then you have to do it. You know, you have to find time to do it. Well, when you only do what they wanted, he wasn't able to achieve his RVU goals. And so that obviously adversely attacked, uh, affected his uh, compensation. So, you know, you want to talk to existing people in the practice 
and really understand, is it possible to make the RVU that you're required to make? But on top of that, if you want to work more and take home more pay, is there the flexibility or the ability to work more? And also, what's the penalty if you want to work less? You know, maybe, you know, you're newly married or maybe you have new children or young children at home or maybe your kids just need you or your wife or your spouse, I should say. Sorry for that. But your spouse should need you at home for certain things. Well, do you have that flexibility without, you know, harming yourself and, and, and harming um, your position to do that? Obviously, you know, if you work less, you'll make less money. But if you're willing to accept that, is that practice going to be supportive? So talking to the people who are already there and understanding what the truth is, because everybody will tell you what you want to hear when you're interviewing, but you need to speak to people who've been in that system. Um, now, the private world is where I have a little bit more um, kind of expertise, if you will. So I think the first thing you want to know is the private practice you're joining. Who owns it? Is it 100% physician-owned? Is it a joint venture with a hospital system or a private equity? Or is it 100% private equity owned? And this can be a big game changer for a lot of people. If it's 100% or majority private equity owned, what's the upside for you as a new person? Are you going to be able to grow financially and within the company? Are you going to be able to uh, have an ownership interest in a company or shares that would lead to profitability if a private equity flips the group to somebody else down the road. So what's your role? Are you merely an employee or are you truly a partner? And, and that is going to be very important to know. One of the things that we're seeing around the country right now is that practices that are owned by private equities are having a hard time recruiting and retaining physicians because they just can't, unfortunately, keep up with the salaries that employed positions are paying. So if you don't already have um, the MGMA, we'll talk about that in a little bit, and we'll talk about how that can help you. Um, the, the second type of private practice is the non-private equity-owned one. So, you know, it's physician-owned or, you know, majority is owned by a physician group or a set of physicians. So how will you be paid in that group? You know, how many years are you a quote-unquote employee and how many years before you become eligible for partnership? Those are key questions to find out. The other thing that you want to know is, is there an ambulatory surgical center uh, as part of the practice? If so, what are the um, ownership opportunities for you? I mentioned in a previous podcast, and no one's ever going to tell you that you have a guaranteed partnership in the endoscopy center at year two. They, they can't tell you that. And the reason for it is they don't know you just as you don't know them. You know, the data is out there that 50% of physicians are going to leave their first job within five years. Well, you know, it's a learning opportunity for you when you join a new group or new practice, a new situation. You're learning them. You're feeling them out. You're seeing if it's someplace you want to be. You're constantly analyzing it. Well, the flip is true for them. They're, they're doing the same thing to you. Are you a good partner? Are you reliable? Do you help out when people need call coverage? Those type of things. Are you easy to work with? Are your patients like you? All that sort of stuff. So, you know, there's no guarantee to anybody that you're going to be a partner in the practice, let alone the endoscopy center. So you probably won't get that guarantee. But what you'll probably be told is that, assuming everything goes okay, you're going to be eligible for partnership. Well, the first thing you want to know then is, if that were to happen, how is that calculated? 
you know, um, interventional uh, endoscopists tend to have a little bit of a disadvantage in this situation because, as I've mentioned in two of my previous podcasts about ASC procedures, you know, when you're sitting in the hospital doing a very complicated ERCP or gallbladder drainers or whatever the case might be, your colleagues are at the endoscopy center cranking out colonoscopies and adding to the bottom line of the, of the small business and uh, creating revenue for their partners as well as themselves. When you're at the hospital doing procedures, you're not necessarily creating revenue for the group. You're actually helping yourself, but you're also helping the reputation of your group as well. But, you know, reputation is fantastic. What most business people will tell you where, you know, show me the Benjamin, show me the dollars. And so, you know, you're at a little bit of a disadvantage. So you also want to understand how it does all of that play into your possibility of buying in. You know, I've, I've seen different models. I've actually seen a, a colleague of mine in a different practice. You know, everyone's supposed to or expected to produce um, a certain number of procedures. And he's expected to produce about 80 or 90% of that just because uh, he does the therapeutic procedures for their group. So, you know, there's different ways for that, but you just really want to know um, how is that going to be calculated. The other thing that you want to know is the formula. And what I mean by that is there's a uh, multiplier attached to every buy-in. So one example that I've seen is that they take the EBITDA of the practice, and let's just use a round number and call it, um, you know, a million dollars. Well, what they're going to do is if there's four partners and you're going to become the fifth partner, they'll take the $1 million and they'll multiply it by a multiple. An average multiple is somewhere between 2.1 to 4.5. Um, we'll use 2.5 just to make the numbers round. But, you know, if that number is 2.5, then you take the million, that becomes 2.5 million. You're going to be the fifth partner, so they're going to divide that by 5. So 2.5 divided by 5 makes it $500,000, and that's what you anticipate your buy-in to be. Um, however, you know, so, so what, I mean, what you want to know is what is a multiple likely going to be, and then also kind of see if you can find out for some competing practices around the same geographical areas, what, what do they use? You know, if, if the group you're joining is offering 4.5 as a multiple, and everybody else is offering 1.9. Well, number one, find out why they're so low. Is there something wrong in that practice? Are they upside down on their real estate? Are they hurting? Whatever. But also, why is 4.5 such an outlier? So, within the for the most part, uh, most groups in the same geographical area will be around the same multiple, and it won't be an issue. But that's what it is. And just for your um, kind of knowledge, that multiple roughly for the most part, correlates to how many years it's going to take you to break even on your investment. So usually, though, if you're working hard, that multiples on the aggressive side, and you're going to recover your money much quicker than that. So if it was 2.5, they're expecting you to make your money back in two and a half years. But you know, if you and your colleagues are all on the same page, you'll probably make that money back in a year and a half or so. But again, every situation is different. And, um, you know, I'm just giving out round numbers to make things make more sense for people. Every situation will be um, variable. Um, the other thing about uh, the uh, uh, job search, you know, I mentioned uh, in geography, but also look at fit. When you have the opportunity to meet the people, are these people that you want to work with? Generally, I look at a medical practice or a job as a marriage. 
In America and in most of the world, 50% of marriages fail. Well, 50% of physicians are going to leave their first job. It's just inevitable. You're not a failure if you leave your practice. You, you know, it's just, it's the way it is. I mean, crap happens. That's what's going to happen. Uh, you know, two fellows, one's going to have a job that he loves or she loves and they're going to stay in for years and the other one's going to leave after five or within five. So um, just keep that in mind. Know that, you know, your first job is not likely your last job. Um, so with that said, um, I'm going to kind of jump in real quick and maybe I should have talked about this in the beginning, but I want to talk a little bit about my journey uh, for those who are interested. I probably followed none of this advice <laughs> and I learned it all in the rough way. I didn't get a different phone number. So that's why 15 years after starting to look for jobs before I became a fellow and an interventional fellow, etc., I'm still getting phone calls from people asking me if I want to move to Timbuktu. Um, my email is consistently flooded and I keep unsubscribing from various job searching companies and guess what? They still find me and I'm still on their lists. So definitely, you know, that was a mistake I made. You know, all this stuff about looking for jobs, geography was extremely important to me. Um, my uh, parents were retiring when I was finishing my interventional fellowship and, uh, my, they, they both have uh, fairly, um, I won't say significant, but they have health issues that require or, you know, need one of their children nearby. And fortunately for them, both are nearby. Um, so family issues led uh, me to seek Arizona. And plus I grew up here and I love it. So I, I didn't want to live anywhere else. So geography was extremely important. The Truth was that I never wanted to be in private practice. I actually wanted to be in academic practice from day one. But I wasn't willing to compromise on geography. And when I applied for jobs in 2009, there was only one major academic center in the Phoenix area, and that was Mayo Clinic, and they weren't looking for someone. Um, so I talked to several hospital systems around that um, didn't have academic programs at the time, of course, fast forward two years after I took my job, they've all become academic centers in the sense that they become teaching programs. And so I was probably a year earlier, or two or a year or two earlier than I needed to be for that specific role. Well, I had some really good mentors when I did my uh, first fellowship. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I did three. So during my first fellowship, I met uh, VK Sharma, who's a really you know, been a great mentor and a very good now close friend of mine. And he took me on as a kind of protege, if you will, during my liver fellowship and helped me with research and, and things like that. Um, well, he was leaving Mayo and starting his own group. And uh, he reached out to me when I was starting my fourth year fellowship and said, you know, we're going to be starting this private practice group with a little bit of a focus on academics and therapeutic endoscopy. And if you're interested, we'd love for you to come out and check it out. So, you know, due to the fact that I wanted to be somewhat academic, in other words, I wanted to teach and I wanted to be able to be therapeutic, um, I, you know, I didn't, couldn't find that opportunity in Phoenix. In fact, most of the hospitals at that time, back in 2010, there was only one endoscopic ultrasound system being used by a private hospital. And some of the hospitals I spoke to didn't even want to buy it at that time. You know, again, they bought it a year or two later, but they didn't want it at the time that I was interviewing. 
I think probably because a lot of people started applying for these jobs that were in the therapeutic world and they realized quickly that if they wanted to attract somebody, they would have to invest in it. Anyway, so I came out, I met him, um, you know, as much as uh, people stress, you know, getting a lawyer to look at your contract and went over everything, you know, I, I went and, and Sharma and, and the partners had their practice, which they just started. And, um, you know, I met them, I went to dinner and we ended up, because everything was closed that day at a California pizza kitchen. And VK, after talking to me and the guys uh, a few days before, uh, turned to me and gave me an offer. I said, okay, um, well, how much am I going to, how often am I going to be on call? They said, we don't know. We, we're not sure yet. I said, all right, well, am I going to be taking more call than you guys? They said, no, it's the same. I said, okay. I said, uh, where's our office going to be? We're not sure yet. We're just starting the practice. We think we're going to be over here. I said, okay. Then, um, you know, I asked him, are we just going to be doing one hospital or two? They said, we don't know. So everything I asked, because the practice was brand new, nobody really had to answer for it. And so then he said, well, this is what we're going to pay. Do you want the job or not? I said, um, sure. And I just shook his hand and that was it. I didn't sign a contract. I did not uh, take it to a lawyer. Very, very, uh, uh, you know, very wrong way to do things. But I'm very lucky because everything worked out, you know. But I would not recommend doing that for anybody. It's, uh, you know, you want things on paper. You want proof. You want to be able to take it a lawyer, to a lawyer. You want to be able to respond with reasonable asks and demands and requests, etc. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, I did it on a handshake deal, but don't do that. So this, I guess this podcast ultimately comes down to do what I say, not what I did, uh, because I did everything wrong, <laughs> uh, at least by uh, current standards. Um, yeah, so I, I think th those are some of the things that I, I, I would recommend for the job seekers. Also, uh, start working on your CV right now. Um, show it to your uh, friends or colleagues. Get feedback on it. Make sure that it's formatted in a way that's easy to follow. You should definitely need to have a long CV, but you should have a short resume as well. Um, because, honestly, not a lot of guys in private, the private world need to see 12 pages of abstracts. You know, But, I mean, you should have that, and you can always submit that as your CV and then submit a shortened form, which just highlights the key points. Uh, make sure that during your fellowship, you know, uh, you've made uh, at least one or two attendings. Um, you know, uh, you, you made them happy so that they would be willing to serve as a reference for you. For a lot of jobs, you don't actually need a letter of recommendation, but you need to be able to provide a phone number so that people can just pick up the phone and ask if you're a psychopath or a good person or whatnot. Um, you know, and I think ultimately it comes down to not just geography, but it really comes down to uh, what do you want and what do you want your career to look like. So with that being said, I'll uh, end today's podcast on, on that note. Um, as usual, please uh, support your societies, whatever you think is most beneficial to you and to your future practice of gastroenterology or endoscopy, whether that be interventional, join ASGE and fight, whether that be general, consider ACG, AGA and ASGE, wh whatever the case may be, join all of them for you know what it's worth. Hepatology, definitely join AASLD. Um, and with my public service announcement of mental health, if you're reaching out, please, uh, sorry, if you're struggling, please reach out, uh, get help. Um, 
you know, uh, many of us struggle with uh, anxiety and depression and, and uh, imposter syndrome and things like that. And getting some help from people is always a great way to go. Um, there's plenty of apps that provide counseling for a small nominal fee. So, you know, look into those things if you're struggling. Um, don't let it get the best of you or your family. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, I would appreciate a like button or a subscribe. Um, otherwise, uh, I look forward to talking to you guys next week. I think um, over the next uh, month, I have two excellent uh, interviews lined up that I'm really looking forward to performing, and I hope you'll look forward to listening to. Uh, and finally, a final request for everybody out there. If anyone knows how to help me get some really cool intro music, I'd appreciate it. Any questions or comments, please feel free to tag me on Twitter at suchdevmd, S-A-C-H-D-E-V-M-D, or on LinkedIn under my name, one couple S suchdev, M-A-N-K-A-N-W-A-L, and then S-A-C-H-D-E-V. Thank you, and um, look forward to the next podcast. Okay.